Hi there, welcome back to the Page Turners podcast, a space where you can freely debate, analyze and enjoy literature with us. It's so great to see you all back again, starting this new year with new thrilling episodes. Today it's time of our third episode. Remember that you can stay updated and participate through our Twitter account. Make sure you don't miss any news and do not hesitate to participate. Mind that any opinion or recommendation is always welcome. As you know, we will be dissecting the second half of the 20th century by means of eight different graphic novels, which will be analyzed following different critical approaches for each of the books. Not only do you have every graphic novel to discuss in our Twitter account, but also the critical approach to be used while reviewing each of the works. Thus, it will be easier for you listeners to follow this episode and deeply understand the critical analysis. Anyway, now it's time for us to pay attention to the literary works on which today's episode is based. These are no other than March, written by John Lewis, and Persepolis, by Marianne Satrapi. Regarding the first one, we will analyze it following the racial theory, while as for Persepolis, we will work using both a postcolonial but also a feminist approach. Although at first glance, anyone could think that it could be difficult to find any similarities between both novels, the fact is that there might be as many similarities as differences between them that the stories take place not only in different countries, but also in different decades, is not an obstacle for us to find a resemblance within the struggles of the main characters. Actually, the first thing in which both graphic novels coincide is not even inside the plot, but in the writers, for both stories are autobiographic, and therefore, by definition, based on the lives and experiences of the authors. In the case of John Lewis, we found ourselves before a US congressman inside Obama's government, who tells us firsthand the story and journey of the blacks before and during the civil rights movement, since he was the SNCC chairman. On the other hand, Marjan Satrapi narrates her own experiences from her childhood to her adulthood, living in Iran during the Iran Islamic Revolution and fleeing to Europe during the Islamist rule. Lately, graphic novels are emerging as an extremely helpful literary genre when trying to make the students learn about important issues in high schools. It has been proven that teenagers these days prefer to read graphic novels and they help them to analyze critically those literary works, just as William Burnham Codell, professor at the Trinity Christian College, affirms. Luckily for us, both series, March and Persepolis, are a great example of that. Whereas March takes place in the United States, that is, the Western world, and as a result, what the narratives tend to define as the civilized world, Persepolis, on the other hand, deals with the Eastern world, the war in Iran and an Iranian woman. This fact, which a priori could go unnoticed, 
has a certain relevance. Whether we like it or not, we happen to have many misassumptions and stereotypes about Islamic societies and their peoples. And this is precisely the reason why reading Persepolis would not lead everyone to the same analysis. And the postcolonial theory has much to say about that. Taking Marjan Satrapi's work as an example, what we people know about Eastern societies in countries like Iran is nothing but the set of stories, news and lies we have been told since we were born. It is every stereotype or misassumption what has shaped our minds into belief what our Western societies wanted us to. Thus, in what can be considered a new way of colonialism, hence its name, the civilized narrative created the societies of the other. The discourse prepared by the Western world to define the uncivilized societies has its influence not only in those living in the US or Europe, but also in the very same inhabitants of this country defined as inferior as we can deduce from Satabri's novel. While teaching this graphic novel, Elizabeth Botson and Melinda Plastas, English and associate professors respectively, noted that their students approached Persepolis with feelings of national insecurity and fear, something influenced undoubtedly by the postcolonial misconceptions of the Middle East. It is heartbreaking, though, to see how in almost four decades things haven't changed at all. In Persepolis, Marjan, fleeing the country, is sent to Austria to study. There, she even gets to the point of rejecting her roots out of shame. Eventually, she comes back to Iran and there she realizes that she is considered Western in her own country, the same way that she is considered Iranian in Europe. In the end of Satrapi's work, the main character leaves her country and establishes herself in France, something which can be considered as a victory of the postcolonial view where Europe is superior to Asian and African countries and societies. Now it's time to turn the page into the other critical approach, which is adequate to analyze the book, because it makes perfect sense that we try to understand how women are portrayed in the plot, reading the book using a feminist approach. As we all know, even these days, the situation for women rights in many countries in Asia and Africa, of which many of them are Muslim countries, is beyond unacceptable. That we can see it early at the beginning of Satrapi's work, when the Islamist radicals came to power and the use of bail becomes mandatory, in high schools first. That way, women are no longer free to dress as they please, they aren't allowed to show neither their bodies nor their faces in public. The radicals rule in a position of superiority over society, but even inside that very same society, there were social levels in which women were at the very bottom of them. Furthermore, during the Cultural Iranian Revolution, every university is shut down, making it impossible for every woman, as we see in Marjan during the novel, to get proper education in an attempt of learning new things and ultimately emancipating. Of course, men couldn't attend neither, but their situation was better than women's. Anyway, 
despite our main character moving to Europe, a place which the narrative considers superior to Iran, we can still perceive traces of machismo suffered by her. Once in Austria, she falls in love with Marcus and they start dating. However, Marcus cheats on her, action which is quite relevant to our topic since we can find combined traces of post-colonialism and machismo. Marcus's post-colonial assumptions made him think of Arabic women as inferior and therefore obedient and compliant, and thought that Marianne wouldn't be rebellious. Yet, our female protagonist couldn't be farther from that. Thus, contrary to what women would do in her culture, she ends their relationship and so rejecting that image of a weak woman and giving the readers the idea of what a brave and independent woman is. So much so that in the end, Marianne is a clear example of female empowerment. Firstly, because due to the fact that a year after getting married, she ends up getting a divorce, which even nowadays is something extremely odd in Muslim societies, and ultimately because she moves to France and starts a new life as a free and independent woman. Without delay, we shall talk about March. As previously mentioned, this series is making a name for itself when it comes to teaching at high schools. As a matter of fact, every day the number of high schools in which the March trilogy is part of the corpus is only increasing, something which is having an incredibly positive effect in those new generations for they are getting to know at a younger age the importance and consequences of the civil rights movement, along with which is arguably the darkest chapter in their country's history, racism and everything it has entailed. According to Hawkins, Lopez and Hughes, as they wrote in the book Using the Arts in Social Studies, students' knowledge about the civil rights period increased dramatically after reading the second book of the series, again proving the extraordinary usefulness of the trilogy. To be fair, one of the reasons why March has this effect in young students is what can be considered as a truly proper decision, that of John Lewis including some images during Obama's presidency assumption to the narrative time of the greatest weight, which is the period of the 50s and 60s. Why is that? Because that allows the readers to realize how different things were just a few decades past, when the image of a black president was just a mere utopia. Truth is that there is no better way to show the truth than having a narrator who knows firsthand everything that happened during the story we are told. Besides, if words are accompanied by great pictures, as this is the case, the impact on the reader is wider, since watching pictures, of which some of them are based on real photographies, makes the story come to life. Actually, the SNCC hired regular people and gave them cameras in order to get photographic records of the sit-ins and protests in an attempt of reaching society. From the very beginning, when we are presented John Lewis as a child, we behold the cruelty of segregation laws that were present in the American society, a society which considered the Negroes as inferior, up to a point that they had to suffer racist conduct in their daily lives. Whites, covered by the law, humiliated and beat black people in an inhumane way, 
as if they were not human beings. Furthermore, blacks weren't allowed to vote, even though it was their right as stated in the Constitution. Hence, racism was not only present in society, but also in the institutions of the United States. This is the reason why their fight was extremely tough, because it was a fight against the whole system. In order to tear the system down, the SNCC, which stands for Students Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, started to conduct sit-ins all around the United States to protest against segregation in restaurants. The organization's internal rules were clear. They wouldn't respond to violence with more violence. Looking at it into perspective, each of the students who participated in that movement are to be praised, because being able not to answer back wins violence when you are being insulted, beaten and humiliated so some strength which might be even hard to believe. Up to what extent was the system corrupt that even policemen were racist? Mind that instead of arresting the attackers, they arrested the black protesters who weren't uttering a word despite being physically assaulted. Not only were they sent to jail for doing nothing, but there were also new laws established forbidding more than two black people together in the street, something which happened in Selma, all that in an attempt to avoid those sit-ins. Needless to say is that many blacks were killed during the civil rights movement, but what is more shocking is that in spite of knowing in some cases who the killers were, the fact that they were white murderers was enough for the judges to set them free. Were it not for the unbreakable courage of those black students who challenged the whole system, and sometimes even death, who knows how the world would be. Yet, we still have work in front of us until we reach the absolute equality. But what is important is that we all stick together, regardless of our race and the color of our skin. We must all work together towards that dream of equality. We should all put in practice the ideal of the SNCC students of returning love for hatred. That way, we would evolve as a society. As you can see, different stories, different countries, and different decades. But the same goal, justice. Thank you everyone for listening. I hope you have enjoyed this episode. Remember, should you have any comments or opinion, we'll be glad to read them through our Twitter account. That's all for today. We will be expecting you for the following episode. And remember, don't shoot, draw. Music